as a father of six children, it, I often notice how when the children move over to that direction, it gets a little quieter. So, uh, <laughs> but um, I, those of you who are familiar when I'm up here speaking, I also don't expect it to stay quiet from you either. So this will be a little more interactive as we go. Um, but I just want to start out with saying this is the time of year where we turn the page to 2024. And many of us start to do things differently. Uh, one of the things we start to do differently is some of us, like myself, are seeking eat, eat better. Now, I know I'm being recorded, and other people can play that back later. Um, but to that end, when you want to eat better, one of the things you start to do is you care about something called ingredients. When you see what's inside something, and you get a sense of how many calories does it have. And you, you know, these 100-calorie things, you know, they last me about two seconds, right? Um, or they say, how much fat does it have? How much protein does it have? And you want to know what's inside something, right? And what is it made of? And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at not so much the ingredients of what we eat, but we're going to look at some of the key ingredients of our faith, a faith that we possess from God's word, and what are the ingredients of that? If real faith had a label, what would be listed on it? And the big idea for today's message is that if real faith did have a label, it would mean that God's word and God's spirit affects the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we act towards others. Those would be the contents of that label. And the way I describe it is real faith shows up in real life. So if you want to know if somebody is a real believer, has a real faith, look at the way that they live. And today, our scripture today kind of gives us a, a look into that. It looks at how God's word and God's spirit reshapes the way that we think, the way that we talk, and the way that we act towards other people. So we're in week three of a sermon series that Brian started out two weeks ago. Last week, he shared with us how we face temptations in real life and how God is better than the choices that we'd make. And he walked us through some of the reasons why we would choose God and why some of the detriments that go along with making choices to the other. And then when he kicked off the series, he shared how we face tests in life that are different than temptations and how there are opportunities to help us grow stronger, wiser, and clearer in the way that we live. So this week, and then next week, Pastor Brian's going to be sharing from James chapter 2, how real faith is seen and how we include people and how we love them in a special way. But today, I'm going to be focusing on James chapter 1, uh, the last section of that book. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, I'd ask you to bring it up now. Um, we're going to be starting in verse 19 and reading to the end of the book. As is our practice, it'll be, all the verses I'll be sharing today will be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. So I'm going to start in verse 19. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what I typically do is I, I walk through each of these verses 
unpack kind of what some of the meaning is behind each of them, and then at the end, we give some ways that we would apply these verses to our lives. So I want to start in verse 19, where James says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This could be a message just in itself. Um, and so James starts out with these set of instructions to dear brothers and sisters. That are those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. Those of us who want to be like Jesus. So he says, you want to be like Jesus? Then this is one way that you can do that. And he actually says, everyone, as in all of us who want to follow Jesus, there's no exceptions, there's no exemptions. Like, well, you know, I have, I have this problem, I have this issue, you don't understand that person, you don't understand how it works in our relationship, there's no exceptions here. So he goes through three key ways to interact that demonstrate this faith in action. The first is to be quick to listen. Now, quick to listen is kind of weird, because um, quick here refers to like swift or speedy. Um, I, I know many of us have heard, how many of us know somebody who's a fast talker? Anybody know fast talkers? Does anybody know anybody who is a fast listener? Did you ever hear quick listener? Oh, he's such a quick listener. She's such a quick listener, right? Did you ever think about that? Like, no, I've never heard anybody referred to as a quick listener, right? So being quick to listen here is basically somebody who listens without any delay, and it's something you do right away. So, I mean, if you ever meet them, I mean, they just engage with you, and like, they have your full attention, and they'll listen to everything you have to say. Like, that rarely happens, right? So now, what's interesting here is, is that there's a sense of immediacy conveyed here. It's this sense of being ready or at a prompt. So this is a person who's kind of looking that way, right? Now, what I, what I want to say is, in this day and age, there's a new thing that just came out. Many of you may have heard of this called ChatGPT. You know what ChatGPT does? It sits there and waits for you to say something. It's waiting for you to prompt it to say something. So like, basically, God's describing here through his word that we want to be almost like a ChatGPT, ready at a prompt to listen to people and hear what they have to say, and then to be able to respond. Now, we don't want to respond like ChatGPT. I'm not going to get into hallucinations, other things like that. That's a topic for a technology speech that I can give you another day. Now, ironically, some of you may have already heard, you know, already not to be quick to listen to what I'm even saying right now. Your minds are somewhere else. You're on lunch. You're on, I can't believe we don't have the Eagles playing now. I did wear green for you Eagles fans today. You, and how can I tell? Because when you look at somebody, just like to say, you can tell if they're engaged with you or not. There are nonverbals that people do to let you know, like, I am tracking with you. I am engaged with you. I'm following what you're saying. And other people are just like, when are you done? I'm just waiting for you to be over so I can talk. Right? And that's why he moves on, right? We're going to touch this on the application section. The listening he's referring to is somebody who's seeking to comprehend what's being said to them. In fact, imagine if everyone you talked to, who, who was talking to you, you pretended that there was going to be a test on what they had to say. Like a professor or a teacher, like there was going to be an exam. And you engaged with them and you listened to everything they had to say. And you're like, oh my goodness, I don't want to miss anything, right? That's what it's talking about here when he says, be quick to listen. Now the next thing he says is be slow to speak. Slow here refers to taking our time and being deliberate prior to saying something. It's not being in a hurry to say something. It's sharing something after you consider all the information. We use a phrase, holding one's peace sometimes, right? Sometimes maybe you shouldn't say something, right? And this is the person who's thinking, right? Thinking before speaking. It's a learned activity. Just like we talked about God develops our EQ, he develops different things in our maturity. This is an area where we can demonstrate our faith by being slow to speak. Now, I just found it wonderful that he coupled these two together, right? Because you can't listen while you're what? Talking. 
right? So there's times I'm like, stop talking, right? Just listen to me. And then what happens is, when that starts happening in my life, what happens is I start to become what? Angry. Angry that I'm not being listened to. So what, is Jesus, what does he say here in the next verse? He says, slow to become angry. So listening, speaking, angry, they're all kind of meshed together. So this last one, slow to become angry, it's, it's the same slow we just said about speaking. It's not being quick-tempered. It's not being easily agitated. It's not having what we would call the short what? Fuse, right? We all, where do those expressions come from? Because we see it. We live it. I do it. But we're all aware that our anger sometimes is expressed through our words, and words can be said impulsively. So James is saying to here to be slow to speak prior to being slow to becoming angry. They're all coupled together. This verse could have an entire message, as I mentioned. But what's neat is, is that James, he actually remembers things that were actually taught. So Jesus, when he was on earth, he was referring to the things that were taught in the Old Testament. And James heard Jesus talk about these things, and this is hypothesis on my part, but I have a feeling that in James's house where he grew up with Jesus, either James's father Joseph or Jesus himself would say some of these verses that I'm going to cite here that are from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Okay, Proverbs 15, 1 and 2, verses 4, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you see how the words and anger go together? But the tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. And last, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. That's what our words can do. If we continue on in Proverbs 13.3, it says, Those who guard their lips preserve their lives. But those who speak rashly, again, speaking quickly, right? What happens? They will come to ruin. Things will go poorly. And then lastly, we see in Ecclesiastes 7, 9, it says, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Be slow to come angry. So those are where James kind of starts out. He says, you want to know how real faith shows up in real life? Look at the way that you listen. Look at the way that you talk. Look at the way that you become angry. And we're going to talk about it when we look at the application. Let's move on to verse 20. In verse 20, James explains almost the why behind these things, uh, particularly the anger piece, he says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Uh, part of that is like, well, I, I didn't think it really did, but that's okay. I mean, here we're basically saying this anger he's talking about is that whole quick-tempered one. It's impulsive. It's a sense of vengeance, right? Like, I cannot stand it anymore. That's all I can, it's a Popeye moment, I call it. It's all I can stands, I can't stands anymore. Right, he crushes the can, gets the big bicep, and he goes and wreaks havoc. So clearly, there's an explosion that James is talking about here. So he wants to camp on this idea of anger anymore and explain to you that there's no way that you're going to do things that honor God when you're in the midst of this unrighteous anger. Okay, this human anger that doesn't produce things that are good, but instead what happens is it becomes destructive for me and for the people around me. We say in our house, collateral damage. Okay, there's collateral damage that happens. But I just want to highlight just one thing. I don't want you to think that all anger is unrighteous. Okay, God himself describes himself as angry at times. But the anger that God expresses is one that's rooted in sadness rather than madness. God's anger is in, he's angry at the outcome of our words and deeds, and he's sad about the state of our hearts. So he's angry about what he sees in our hearts 
because he knows the way that it negatively affects ourselves and others. So here, this anger is not that way. This anger is about control. This anger is about frustration. This anger is about lacking patience. And in fact, this righteousness that he encourages us to go after is the thing that he heard Jesus say when he did his teaching. We see this in Matthew chapter 6. And he says that Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is the good things that we can do to help ourselves and others. And all these things will be given you as well. So now we move on to verse 21, and James continues to expand on this idea of destructive anger and the wider set of things that are connected to it. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that's so prevalent, and instead of do what? Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So here's a picture of a person who's just beginning to think about God's word. And James, when he talks about getting rid of this stuff in our lives, he's talking about these patterns that we've had in the past habits that we've had that are destructive to ourselves and others. And instead, he says he wants us to establish new patterns according to God's word. It's a sense of stopping things in the past that we know were immoral or evil and replacing them with things that are good and pleasing to God. Things that God reveals to us as we read his word. Now, around 20 years later, Paul and Peter begin to write letters again to other followers of Jesus and they pick up on this idea that James does. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things. And he starts with what? Anger. And then he even goes for and says, rage, malice, slander, right? Slander comes from our words, filthy language. Again, he's talking about our actions and our words. And Peter does the same thing, talking to another group. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, slander, again, the things that come from our words. So James is explaining here that God replaces our ill will with God's good will. So how we, how we act and think towards people, God gives us a new way to think, a new way. He reshapes our thoughts, he reshapes our words, and he reshapes our actions. How does this happen? So James makes it really clear. He talks about humbly accepting this word. What does that mean? How do you humbly accept the word? Well, first of all, you have to read it. You have to understand it. You have to apply it to your life. Now, when James uses the word accept here, it's a fascinating word. It's basically this idea of that this is something you receive from God. Too often when we think about trying to please God, we think about the things that we do for him rather than the things he does for us. We think about the things we want to give God rather than the things that God gives to us. So this idea of accept is really receive-oriented. It's receiving God's word into your life. It's looking at his word and accepting what he has to say. It's receiving the grace that we sang about earlier, that amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. So being saved is not what we give to God, but it's rather what God gives to us and what we receive from him. May today be the day of salvation for you if you've never received him. May he open up your eyes, may he open up your heart to be able to receive that. Now, James, move on, and this is kind of the crux of where we're getting into our passage today with the theme of doing, right, rather than just being or, or thinking. Verse 22 says, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Again, another person who spends time with God's word, we can look at that picture, and here James is explaining how God's word is carrying it out. Now, if any of us have jobs, and at jobs, we're given instructions on what to do. And you can either do that in a not at all, there's some consequences that go on like that, you can do it in a half-baked way, three-quarters, or you can do it all the way. 
So here, when James is talking about this idea of do what it says, there's a sense of completeness and accuracy in doing what God says in his word and the instructions that he has for us. It's not just about being informed of what God thinks that he wants us to do. It's actually going and applying it and following through. Doing makes the difference. Now, I want to ask here, how many people here just learn by listening? And they got a hang of it, right? Most of us learn by what? Doing. So how is it any different with God's word, right? We're not just going to read the Bible and somehow it's going to come into our, imbue into ourselves and we start doing it, right? It's, it's as we practice it. Now what's amazing here is that James, even though he's oftentimes characterized as somebody who's really focused on our deeds, he's a person who most of his words actually deal with our heart. And if you look at our baron here, we talk about Christianity as a matter of the heart. So James here is talking about God's word getting into your heart and then getting into your lives. So don't juxtapose, don't switch those around. We're not looking for you to, God's not asking you to do godly things without first having God's spirit and God's word inside of who you are. There's a, there's a sequence there. God discerned us to learn by doing, but that doing first comes by seeing what happens. And he provides this wonderful analogy. Um, a little bit of a history lesson for you guys. So, um, Phil's keep me honest, it was probably over 25 years ago that I gave my first message to this church. And this message was on this exact mirror passage. And the analogy I used at that time was spiritual bedhead. So I'm not going to go into that today, but that's another image you can think about. Um, but this idea here is James uses an analogy, and I love analogies. I think analogies provide clarity. They provide a better understanding of things. He talks about something, and I, when I did that message, I did the, all this historical study on when did mirrors show up in history. So I mean, now you've diverted your attention towards that, and you can go and read that another time. But mirrors have been around a long time. And we people have looked at themselves in a mirror for a very long time, back in even Jesus' day, right? So what do we use a mirror for? We look at the mirror to see what you look like, right? And when we look in the mirror, who do you usually look at? Yourself, right? Like, you're not really looking at the person behind you. So if you can put up the picture there, we can look at the picture of the person looking in the mirror, right? We look at ourselves. So James describes someone who's looking in a mirror, and they're checking themselves out to see how they look, right? And they they're, have a little bit of a tension. There's a fixation there. Like, when you look in the mirror, there's different ways you can look. But James is saying, look, when we look in the mirror, there's an intentionality to what we're looking at. We're trying to see if there's anything that's just not quite right, right? You know, I mean... Whatever it is, I, I don't wear makeup, I was, you know, but if those of you who do, you understand this a little more. I can't provide a lot of more color on that, but all of us are looking in the mirror before we go somewhere, right? Particularly before you go to a wedding, before you go to a job interview, there's a special attention you're putting to your appearance because you want to look your best. And here, James is saying, look, just as you look in a mirror, and he's saying, oh my goodness, and then what happens? He says, this person in verse 24, they looked in the mirror, and they forgot what they looked like. In fact, what's amazing is, I love when you, you add an adverb here. James is actually going to use an adverb he's actually heard his brother use, Jesus. He uses the word, the adverb immediately. Immediately forgets what he looks like. Well, this immediate was, was the same word, right, that we used in Matthew. Can you skip over the one slide? Well, you go ahead and show it. Go ahead and show it. This is, this is the idea of forgetting, right? This is forgetting what you look like, okay? <laughs> we'll come back to that. So go to the next one where we have Matthew chapter 8. So Jesus said... There was this interaction Jesus had, right, with a man, right, who had leprosy. And in, in Matthew chapter 8, this is since Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, he said, you know, I'm willing to be healed. And Jesus said, be clean. And it says, immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. That same word immediately is used here where it's like you go and you look at the mirror and you immediately forget what you look like. It's gone. It's like, 
So that same sense of this idea, let's go back to our monkey there for a second. Like we look in the mirror, right? And it's a forgetting, right? It's a forgetting what we look like. Now what's interesting here is the word also has embedded in it a sense of neglect. It's almost like you don't care. So you look in the mirror and you're like, I, you know, you see it, you understand what it shows you, and you just, it's not only that you forget, but it's like you're, you're apathetic. It's like, I don't really care. Right, so this is the idea of like no longer caring about what God's word says, no longer caring about what it shows me, no longer caring about what God's perspective is on something. So James goes on to explain the, the opposite though in verse 25. He says there's a habit you can get into and how you become a doer of God's word. He says whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they had heard. So there's forgetting and not forgetting. But instead, he says, not only just not forgetting, but by doing it, then you're going to be blessed. So you look at it, you take it in, and you do something about it. So this is a different kind of looking. This is this look with intentionality to look for truth. And actually, in the scriptures, there's a group of, of people who were in an area called Berea, uh, these original believers of Jesus in Berea, and they were actually commended for how they did this. In Acts 17, verse 11, we see the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and they examined them. They looked intently at them every day to see what Paul said was true. So there was this hunger for them to, to, to learn, to grow in their acumen of the scriptures, to understand what God's word has to say, and then to apply it for their lives. So when James here is referring to this perfect law, it's something that's full and complete. It's everything you need. We're told in the scriptures that we have everything we need for life and godliness. But not only that, but it's described with a word that's very fascinating. It's called freedom. Now, freedom is, a, is an amazing word, and it talks about this liberty. And it's the freedom to know what's right and the right thing to think, say, and do in any circumstances. Wouldn't you love to know what to think, say, and do in every circumstance in life? That's what we have here in God's word when he talks about this freedom. And then when you do it and you continue in it, that's how you're blessed. Now, this idea of blessing is kind of a churchy word that you hear. We sing it once in a while. We talk about it. But actually, it's a word that was common in that day and age. And actually, I wish it was more common in our days because it really talks about feeling fortunate and happy about something. How often do we feel fortunate and happy about things? That's the concept of being blessed. Now, blessed feels like a churchy word. But you can just say, look, I feel so fortunate that God has worked this out in my life. I feel so happy about something. And it's not just the happiness that's fleeting, but it's a sense of embedded joy. And Brian talked about it in week one, joy in all circumstances. So let's get back to where Jesus, James is going to turn the page, and he's going to come back to that whole talking thing. And he's going to give us a little bit of a sterner warning. In verse 26, he says, Those who consider themselves religious, yet do not keep a tight ring on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. It's like James is like, just one more thing I want to say about that speaking thing. And this is a person who's thinking about that right now. And this is what he wants to say, watch it, right? Basically, he says, if you think that you're devout in your faith and you're deeply committed to it, as people listen to you, they're going to know. Because what comes out of your heart goes out of your mouth. So if you want to see how much somebody is devout in their faith, committed to their faith, listen to how they talk. Listen to how they talk about themselves. Listen to how they talk about God. Listen to how they talk about other people. That's the evidence of what's going on inside their heart. 
And oftentimes people say they're Christians, but we listen to them, and we don't necessarily see that. It doesn't really match or drive. And then that creates this weird tension because it's this word that comes out that Jesus warns about many times, and James talks about indirectly here. It's called hypocrisy. And that's where the words that we say, the things that we do, just don't match. So James uses some strong language about those people and their faith. He basically says their faith is worthless. It's not fully successful. It's futile. And we could even say it's in vain. Your faith is, it's not worth it. It's almost better if you had never said you had faith in the first place, rather than kind of taint the name. So James ends this section with a contrast of this worthless faith to what a real faith is. And he's going to use a really high, confusing bar, I think. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So there's really two main ideas in this verse. And the first one is this idea of looking after people. He uses orphans and widows because they were the ones who were most vulnerable in that time. And still today they are. But the idea of looking after them is really kind of a little unclear here. You're like, well, what does it mean I have to look after an orphan and widow? How does that demonstrate my faith? And it's really this idea of checking in on somebody to ensure they're doing okay and they have what they need. It's keeping them in your mind. It's caring for their well-being. And again, James remembers his, his brother Jesus and Jesus' teaching. Jesus talked about the same word to kind of check in and care for somebody. Jesus used it in Matthew 25, verses 36 and 43, and he said, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was prison and you came to visit me. And then in verse 43, it says, I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. So people who have real faith care about other people who are in a vulnerable state, who have basic needs. They look after them. So when James refers to these people, they're actually in distress. He uses the word distress back in verse 27. And it's this sense of not even being able to meet their basic needs. If you think of Maslow, they didn't even have the, the things that they need to survive. So Paul talks about that, and he was familiar with that later on when he talked to some of the believers in Corinth because they were going through those same circumstances. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. He's worried that there were people there who were under hard-pressed, and really it's hard-pressed financial times. It's financially caring for widows and orphans, people who don't have the ability to generate enough income to take care of their basic needs. They can't support themselves without the services of others. And, and in fact, Peter echoes the same idea in 2 Peter 3.14. He says, so then, dear friends, you are looking forward to this, so make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, because this is what true religion is about. If you want to know what pure religion looks like, it's about people who care for people when they get nothing back in return. <laughs> this idea of spotless means not being polluted as well. Um, you know, those of us, I mean, we, we live in this day and age where we have stain remover. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. I just was working on a car yesterday and got stuff. On, it's amazing what it can do. But the whole idea is the way you need stain remover is because you, you kind of rub into something. You bump into something. So here, James is talking about not only should we be caring for people who are vulnerable, but at the same time, we need to be careful of the people that we spend time with because we become like who they are. And their ideas about God, their ideas about other people, and their ideas about getting rather than giving are going to rub off on us. So he talks about being careful about how you rub off, how you rubbed off on the ways that qualities and behaviors and opinions of other people. That could affect your character. And they might have a different view about 
widows and orphans, and they'd see them just not worth your time. So they would actually see them as a burden. They don't add any value, but they take things away. They take away your time and money. Don't bother. So there's a lot in these verses here today. So how do we apply this to our lives? There's three main ideas I just want to bring across. But before I do that, I want to remind us that God's word directs us to serve others, as we saw with those orphans. And who served the most? Jesus. And we see this in Mark 10, 45. And it says what well, the whole purpose of Jesus' life was. For he said, this is Jesus talking. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and what? Give his life as a ransom for many. So he didn't come to serve, but to serve, and he gave his life. He gave his life for us, that we could be, have that freedom I talked about from bondage of sin and death and live our lives as James describes here. So how does somebody become saved? How does this work out in your real life? Romans 5 describes it really well. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were giving God nothing, while we weren't even giving him our attention. Christ died for us. And it continues on. Since we have now, what he did for us, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? For if we, while we were still God's enemies, were reconciled to him through his death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled and saved through his life? We get saved by what God did for us, not what we do for him. As I say, by working, we're saved by receiving. We're not saved by what we give God, we're saved by what he gives us. Now, for those of us who are saved, how do we apply this passage? What are the three main ideas I want to get across? The first is, is that I think we should adjust the ratio and speed of our listening and speaking. Now, you've heard of the God-given ratio, that God gives you two ears and one mouth. That's one good ratio. But just in general, right, how many words do you use in a day? And how are you using those words, right? How are you spending time just intently looking at somebody, giving them your full attention? Now, a lot of this is not about necessarily creating guilt. I Really, what I want to do is think about, well, why am I doing that? So God helped me as I begin to think through this passage. Why am I doing that? And I think there's two general reasons why God has us think about this ratio and the speed of what we do. One is, is that we, don't, we go back to chapter 1 versus Brian talked about trials. And so we think there's things happen in our lives that God is asleep at the wheel. So we want to engage and take control. We're afraid. So we're afraid of what they might say or do, so we want to get in front of it. So we either get in front of something or we take control of something. And that's why this role, you don't need to take control. You don't need to be afraid. I only have good and perfect things in store for you. That may be hard, as Brian talked about. But you're always starting to do things. It's because maybe I'm afraid or maybe I just want to take control. And so as I begin to check my heart, then I'm more willing to listen. I'm more willing to gather more information before I talk. And I'm willing to... But ironically, even last night as I was doing the final preparation for this message, we had an explosion in the house that started from me. So this is not a path to perfection. This is about putting on new habits. So if you do mess up in this area, you have an opportunity. What I did last night is I apologized to the people that I didn't listen to very well. I yelled out with my words, and I was angry unnecessarily. So don't expect yourself to be perfect. Just know what to do next. Do the next right thing. Clean up the collateral damage, we say in our house. Make things right. So the second thing that we'll do is to doing, be different by doing things differently. It's not just enough to think about things. Nothing changes. What? If nothing changes. 
Nothing changes if nothing changes. Okay, I know it sounds very profound here from this morning. But the idea that James is saying here is like, look, you got to be a doer of the word. Like, you got to do these things that God says in his word. You just can't look at them, think that they're good ideas, and not really apply them. They're meant to be applied and tried, even experiment. Like, oh my goodness, look at that time. I actually waited before I talked, and it went better. Like, that's great. That's amazing. I'm going to try that at the end. Like, God's things work. He's the one who designed us. He's the one who designed relationships. He's the one who designed the way we operate with each other. It's his model. It's his operating model. But it has to come through doing, not just reading it and understanding it, but it has to come through application in real life. We say that real faith shows up in real life in real ways. So how real is your faith? And it really comes down to your desires. We talk about a caring place where God transforms lives, and then more importantly, that Christianity is a matter of heart. What's going on in your heart? What do you see happening in your heart? I know for me, you know, I continually need to ask God to replace my desires with his. I need to continually ask God to give me the discipline to follow through with things I know are right to do or right not to do. And I'm learning and growing in those areas. And he gives us an opportunity. So James is about maturation, not necessarily about perfection. So that's what we want to see. Is that, is, are your desires changing? Do you have a certain level of discipline you didn't have before in your life? Um, so lastly, um, I want to just highlight they're, they're doing things differently. You kind of is to care for those who are vulnerable and in need. And I touched on this a little while ago, but there's a sense here where this gets really um, back to what, why do we do what we do, particularly with our time and our money. Um, where do we give our time and our money to, and what is our purpose? And now, so I, I happen to work for an investment firm. I'm all about investing. I think it's great to be able to generate passive income and to be able to care for one's family. I think those are great things. But this is about really generosity. It's really what I'm talking about here. I'm not necessarily talking about personal finance. Uh, I could talk to you about that another day. It's about generosity. Why are we generous? Are we generous for the purpose of getting back something from someone? Because here, widows and orphans almost give us nothing in return. So it's a way to expose if and how generous we are. And we're generous because God has first given to us. He's the giver of all good things. So I want to tell two stories in this area. Don't go to the picture yet. Uh, one is just, uh, I had a dear friend, Tom. His, Tom Ashby, he and his wife were uh, members of our church for a period of time. They moved up to Sellersville. And then sadly, Tom ended up getting um, colon cancer and passing away. And after he passed away, his widow, Jamie, came up to me and said, um, in the event that something would happen to her, would I be willing to be the person in their will that looks after their children? I didn't know what to say. Um, do, you, do you say no to a grieving widow? No, but you know, at the same time, like, if I do this, this would, like, it's, so I just prayed for Jamie every night that she would live. And, <laughs> and then when she got married, like, I was just like, hallelujah, went to the wedding. So, like, it was really good stuff. But my whole point of this is, like, you have to make a choice in life, right? You're going to be asked to do things that are going to be really potentially cost you a lot. And you don't know what to do about that. So do I trust God that he's going to keep Jamie alive, that I trust God that he's going to find a new husband and then it's going to be better? Um, and that's what you don't know. So when we talk about this care for those who are vulnerable, I don't know how it's going to look for you. I don't really know, but I will know that you'll have opportunities to do this. And you're going to have opportunities to really have your heart exposed. Am I going to be generous or not with my time and my money? I don't know. There's times I'm not. There's times I'm like, ah, oh, I just don't have it in me. And there's other times that God gives me the desire and discipline to say, yes, 
Now on this one, I, to further add a little bit of the humor, I didn't tell Phyllis till much afterwards, which was really a bad move. Um, but when I went to the wedding, she was really happy. So like, um, so definitely talk to your wife if you're gonna take on other, other people's kids in those situations. Um, but Jamie was both a widow, and then there could have been some orphans involved there. Now speaking of orphans, some of you know who I am and some of you don't know, but here's a picture of my family. And my family is a family that's kind of made in a different way. So we have children through birth and we have children through adoption. I've adopted four children in my family. Um, they're here today. Uh, three of them are here today. And I'm just very uh, glad that God gave me the opportunity to do that. It's a crazy story behind each of their journeys into our family. Uh, God had orchestrated some circumstances through both trials and tribulations that Brian had talked about uh, in chapter one in the first part that kind of opened the door for that. But um, what I do do is when I'm at different places and I talk about my family composition, you bring up the idea of adoption and adopting people. And this whole idea of uh, you know, widows and orphans is a very sensitive topic to anybody regardless of how they feel about God. They immediately become very mindful of this is a really big thing. They also think, oh my goodness, I could never do that. You're such a saint. And I'm like, well, you might be able to do it, but I don't recommend it for most people, to be fair. It's a, it's a very arduous, complicated situation that you have to really have God's heart in if you want to get involved in. But my whole point of this is that adoption, orphans, widows, if you hear somebody who's died and the, and the, the widow's there, like, there, it just becomes very real and very sensitive. And people pause and they think deeply about things that they normally don't think about. So those topics, as, they, as you had opportunities to come up with them, my mom's here today, my dad had passed away a couple years ago, my mom's a widow and she's doing great and I love spending time with her and, and helping her, but you know, there's this sense where you have opportunities in your life that God's gonna bring people who are vulnerable and in need. And what are you gonna do? It's gonna reveal your heart. And that's why James says, real religion, a real faith shows up in real life in the choices that you make. That's what this is all about today. That real faith is demonstrated in real life and how God's word and God's spirit affects the way that you think, the way that you speak, and the way that you act towards others. How is real faith showing up in your life? If you don't have it, get the real faith today. If you do have it, ask God to strengthen you in that faith. Bring that faith into action. And at the end of our time here today, what I hope that we've learned is how we can live out this real faith and how God's word and God's spirit can take over our hearts and our minds and reshape them in the way that we think, talk, Dear God, we thank you for your word and how it's alive and how it gives us wisdom and insight for life. We thank you for your spirit, that it gives us desire and discipline to follow your word. We thank you for the symbols <laughs> and that we can praise you. We thank you for just so many things. Um, you know, it's a good time for us to take inventory at the beginning of the year, to look at the ingredients of the faith of our lives. And God, we thank you that each person here is a different part of that journey. And Lord, you're just asking us to take the next step in that journey to what you have for us next. So Lord, I pray that each person would be able to go back, read over these verses, have it process them for their lives, be encouraged and equipped in their journey, spiritual journey today. In your name.